Well, welcome everybody. Uh, good to see all of you. We're in Mark chapter 6. Here we go. Let's get rolling. We're in verse 53 of the sixth chapter of Mark, and um, we just ran out of time last week, but remember the kind of the context of this chapter. You had the feeding of the 5,000, and we discussed that at length, immediately followed by the Lord Jesus walking on water, and we discussed both of those because all the Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, all four Gospels, and all record Jesus walking on water. So they, they are connected events. And the amazing thing about both of these is these two miracles are miracles not only to prove to the crowd that he is the Messiah, but also for the disciples. They are didactic. They are teaching. And this, this walking on water is especially powerful because it is to prove that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is God. And that little phrase in the middle, really at the end of verse 48, as Christ is walking on water, to, he meant to pass by them. That, that In English, when you read that, it sounds like he didn't see them. That's not the point. It's the exact same language that's used in Exodus 33 of Yahweh passing by Moses to reveal himself, and in Job chapter 9. So this to pass by is, a, is an intentional miracle of Jesus to prove that he's Yahweh, and when he responds to them, uh, his response is, it is I, literally in Greek, ego ami, I am, I am. So th this miracle is incredibly, this miracle meaning his walking on water, is incredibly important in revealing again to his disciples that he is not only the Messiah of Israel, he is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. And so those two connections are very important. Now, with that quick summary, in verse 53, when they had crossed over, now crossing over means going from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, to the land at Gennesaret. And if you look on your map on page five, if you're interested in doing that, but if you are looking at that, you can see where Gennesaret is. It is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of the northwest side. And it is, it is one of the most fertile, highly populated areas in the, around the Sea of Galilee. And actually it is still today, it's a very fertile area but it's highly popular. It's a plain, it's a flat area. The rabbis at that time called it the Garden of God. Now, I'm giving you background information that may or may not be important, but this is a, it's a gorgeous area. It's a beautiful area. And so they're in Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, this is summary. This is typical Mark. This is a brief summary of the Galilean ministry of Jesus on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. 
One other brief comment I read from the ESV translation, that last phrase, last clause actually, in the end of the, of the verse, verse 58, and, it's, and who touched it were made well. That little phrase, were made well, is literally, we're being saved. Now, ESV, and I understand why they're translating it that way, but it's two things going on here. The people, the crowds, are responding to Jesus, to his messianic miracles, but they're responding in faith. It is, Jesus is honoring their faith, because as they bring their sick and so on to Jesus, and even, even believing, this is the crowd, believing if they can even touch the fringe of his garment. Now that is faith, and Christ is honoring that faith. And so again, we're seeing, and Mark is doing this in just a summary fashion, we're seeing a summary, once again, of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. As you remember, three years, Jesus' public ministry. One year in Judea, the Gospel of John records that. Two years, in Galilee. And Mark is giving us a very succinct summary, again, of, of one of the regions of Galilee where Christ was ministering. Okay. I should have been able to cover that last week, but we ran out of time. Jim, uh, can I stop you right there? I, um, are these people, they're believing that he can heal them, but is he, are they trusting him for being their Savior later or now, or what do you think? That, I, that's a hard call in, in, in a very real sense. That's a hard call to make. But the, the language of the text, at the very end of the, of the chapter, of, the te, of verse 58 in chapter 6, is literally we're being saved. And so it's, it's the verb sozo, which is the normal verb used in the New Testament for salvation. So it's faith that he can heal. And as he heals, faith in him as a person. So I simply cannot answer the question whether all of the people in Galilee who are seeing, experiencing, and, and, and experiencing the, the healing are actually saved in a in eternal salvation sense. I, I, I can't say that. But it would seem reasonable to me because of the language that's being used that many actually experience not only the physical healing of their bodies, because that's why they're bringing the people to Jesus, but also the saving of their soul. In other words, eternal salvation. So, so as a follow-up, um, could they actually believe he had that power, Jim, and, and still not, some not trust him ultimately to be their Savior? Yes. Okay. Sure. Thank you. Now let's uh, get into chapter 7. Now, th this chapter um, is, is <laughs> in a way, I, you, I think I say this about every chapter, but chapter 7 is a really important chapter. In this sense, what is happening now, and this is what Mark is doing, Matthew does this even more intentionally. Mark is interested, okay, we see how the crowds are responding to Jesus. The thousands that were following him around Bethsaida and the north 
east side of the galaxy of Galilee, which then leads to the feeding of the 5,000, which then leads to walking on water and all that. But how's the leadership responding? The people, the people on the Sanhedrin who know the law, who know the Old Testament prophecies, who could quote vast portions of the Old Testament by memory, how are they responding? And so that's what Mark is interested in doing in chapter 7. And what this is going to set up in chapter 7 is a contrast between the spiritual leadership and Jesus, the contrast between the spiritual leadership's interpretation of the law and Jesus' interpretation of the law, and to demonstrate that the spiritual leadership is binding the people of Israel into a man-centered legalism, where in contrast with Jesus, who is freeing the people with a message of liberty, freedom from the bondage to legalism that he can bring. And the key phrase in this chapter is the traditions of the elders. You'll see that coming up. That's the key phrase of this chapter. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, now let's stop there for a minute. What you have are two critical groups that made up the spiritual leadership of first century Israel. The Pharisees and some of the scribes. The Pharisees, I mean, you know who they are. We've talked about them before. The scribes, most scribes are Pharisees, but the intent of the scribe was to copy Scripture and to teach Scripture. And it tells us, Mark is telling us, they had come from Jerusalem. So what's the situation here? The spiritual leadership from Jerusalem is traveling all the way up to Galilee. It's about a 90-mile trip all the way up to Galilee to find out what is going on up here with this rabbi, Jesus, who is gathering these enormous crowds. So they're checking out. This is like an investigation. This is like a group coming up to understand the growing popularity of Jesus, to understand why the crowds are swarming around Jesus. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, let's just talk about that for a minute. So the very first thing Mark focuses on is the response of these leaders to something that relates to the law, to something that relates to their interpretation of the law. Their interpretation of the law was, you cannot eat anything without first washing your hands. Now, you and I do that because we understand the nature of of disease, we understand the nature of, of how bacteria that can harm us, and so we wash our hands so that we're not mixing that bacteria. Well, they didn't understand that. This was a ceremonial cleansing. I, I've been to Israel many times, and it's really fascinating, even when you're at the Wailing Wall, 
they have these enormous um, and really quite large circular fountains with all of these cups where you see people going washing their hands before they go down to the whaling wall. And so this is the this is the Pharisaic interpretation of the wall. And what they are observing is that some of the disciples, and so this this means they have been observing this for a while now. They're scrutinizing everything that's going on, and now what they're going to do is they key in on this issue. Some of his disciples aren't washing their hands. So they're eating their food in a defiled state. Verse 3, Mark explains this to us. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, that is a phrase you ought to underline or highlight or circle or just make note of. That is the key to understanding chapter 7. The tradition of the elders are the Pharisaic interpretation and application of the law. By the third century, in other words, about 200 years later, all of these interpretations and applications will be compiled together in a book called the Mishnah. And if any of you are scholars or have read uh, somewhat extensively in the, in the New Testament, undoubtedly you've come across the Mishnah being referred to. This is really, really important. So Mark is saying what these spiritual leaders are doing is holding Jews accountable to their interpretation of the law, their application of the law. And Mark, and really they called it, the tradition of the elders. This is not God's law, this is Pharisaic interpretation and application of God's law, and they're equating the two. Our interpretation and application is what God is saying, and so you must do what we are telling you to do. And so this is critical. How is Jesus going to respond to this? Continue in verse 4. They're holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Verse 5, the parenthesis is over. And the Pharisees and scribes ask him, the him would be Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the first five verses set up the context of this extremely important situation, a contrast between the spiritual leadership and Jesus a contrast between the spiritual leadership interpretation and application of the law and Jesus' interpretation and application of the law, and the contrast between a legalistic burden and a freeing liberty. That's what's occurring here. Now, verse 6, 
the Lord Jesus responds, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, when you read something like that, you kind of get a sense that Jesus is using a very important word. Because if you look somebody in the eye and call them a hypocrite, are you paying them a compliment? Are you saying something positive about them? Well, that those two rhetorical questions, obviously the answer is no. So Jesus, listen to me, man. Jesus is intentionally humiliating these men. He is intentionally confronting these men. Well did Isaiah prophesy, and he's backing up his humiliation and confrontation with the Word of God. You fit what Isaiah said in chapter 29, verse 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And I, I, I'm not going to repeat all that again, but the three-part contrast that is occurring in chapter 7 has now reached kind of the key apex. When Christ quotes from Isaiah 29, the authority of God speaking, why he has every right to call them hypocrites. And then he concludes, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. So what is Jesus doing? Again, think of the way I set up the three-part contrast. Using the authority of God's Word, he's saying, you are just like the people during Isaiah's day who honor me with your lips. And the Pharisees and scribes did that. But their entire approach is teaching the commandments of men as doctrine, tradition of the elders. And that's what Christ is saying. What you are doing violates the intent of God's Word. And in verse 9 through 12, Jesus further illustrates their hypocrisy. Look at verse 9. And he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees and scribes, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. <clears throat> for, Jesus, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Exodus 21, 17. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer put him, permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and money, many such things you do. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Again, he is contrasting the law of God, which is to be freeing, 
which is to be liberating with their legalistic traditions. And he says, the law says you're to honor your mother and dad, and if you revile your mother and dad, that's a capital offense according to the law. But what you do is you say, mom and dad, I can't take care of you. Mom and dad, as you're getting older, I can't help meet your needs. Because remember, there are no nursing homes, there are no care facilities, there are no retirement communities, there's no Social Security, there's no Medicare. So as parents get older, it is the obligation of the children to care for them and meet all their needs. But Jesus says, you don't do that. You say, Mom and Dad, I can't because I've set everything aside as Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. It's an Aramaic word. It's Aramaic for legally, I've dedicated this to God, which means, I'm sorry, all my money I've set aside for God, I can't help you. Now, the, the bottom line is, they're really not giving all that money to the temple, they're setting that side for themselves to live well, but mom and dad, this is all dedicated to God. God's eventually going to get us, so I can't help you. And Jesus says, you make void the Word of God. You have negated, neutralized, rendered inoperative the law in what it says about caring for your parents so that you can selfishly keep it all for yourself. Your tradition is trumping God's law, and you do this in many other things as well. Now, again, men, Jesus Christ is publicly humiliating and condemning these spiritual leaders, validating his charge, you're hypocrites. And uh, again, I'll do this one more time. This is a three-part contrast between the, the spiritual leadership and Jesus Christ between the spiritual leadership's interpretation and application of the law and Jesus Christ's personal application and interpretation of the law, and a contrast between the legalistic traditions which bind people and Jesus Christ who frees people. And that's one of the reasons if you go to the end of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, you are being borne heavily by the traditions of the Pharisees. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My, my task is, 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 is bearable, but not the Pharisees. Jesus has come to free us from the legalistic traditions of men that bind our heart, bind our soul, bind our mind, and render us absolutely inoperative because of the burdens of legalistic righteousness. And this is an incredibly important contrast. And again, one more time, Jesus has publicly humiliated these leaders. Is it any wonder they reach the conclusion, this guy has got to go? All right, now, we're not done with this, because 14 through 23 uh, in the chapter continues it. But let me stop for a minute. Are there any questions? Everybody with me? Yes, sir. All right. Your silence, then I'm going to assume it means you're with me. 
verse 14. And again, this is continuing this context. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Now here is Jesus' interpretation. Here is Jesus' application. Listen to what he says. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, meaning defile him morally. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, you can understand what Jesus is saying if you understand what he's specifically saying. This idea of the Pharisaic application that you must wash yourself ceremonially before you eat is not what God intends. Because what is outside of you isn't what defiles you. It's what's inside of you that defiles you. Now, he needs to explain this. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, what he had just said in verse 15. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not in his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. That's radical. Jesus is saying, what defiles a human being is not what they eat, because it goes into the stomach, and then is expelled through the digestive system. It's what's in their heart that matters. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, the ESV puts that in parenthesis, and perhaps that's, that's, that should be in parenthesis. But that is profoundly important. This, now listen very carefully to the sentence I'm about to utter. This is an indication that Jesus is inaugurating the new covenant. Remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is in Joppa, and he, he is on the, the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, and he's praying and he has a vision, he has a dream. And coming out of heaven is this enormous cloth with all these animals, unclean animals, clean animals, kosher animals, non-kosher animals, according to Jewish law. And God says to him, eat. And Peter says, I can't. Some of these are unclean. Jesus is declaring all foods clean. Let's put it in Jewish language. Jesus is declaring all foods are kosher. This is new covenant language. This is the new order, and Jesus is inaugurating it. And so he's teaching something that I am absolutely convinced. The, the, the disciples are sitting there listening to him, and they're shaking their heads, and they're saying, what? All foods are clean? that what defiles me is not what goes in, 
because it goes to my stomach, then it's expelled from my body by my digestive system. And Jesus is saying, you guys have to understand that in the new order of things, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Far from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. That's what defiles a person. So let's take this apart. Verse 21, because Jesus now is using, now listen carefully, Jesus is using food and the digestive system and what defiles and what does not defile to demonstrate something. Evil comes from the human heart. Evil comes from the human heart that, that unites with a person's will to produce evil action, sin. And to illustrate this, in verse 21, end of verse 21 through verse 22, Jesus Christ lists 12 vices, 12 evil acts. Six of them are plural nouns depicting evil acts. Six are singular nouns depicting evil dispositions. All right? Out of the heart of a man the center of a human being's will. When it unites with the mind, producing actions which are sin, he says, for example, these are six plural nouns depicting wicked acts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. Then, six evil dispositions, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Evil comes from within the human being. That's what defiles a human being. The issue of washing your hands before you eat is not the issue. The Pharisees have made that an issue. They've made it a legalistic structure that binds Jewish people. They're missing the whole point of God's law. What God is interested in is what is going on inside of you. Just like food, you take it into your body, it goes into your stomach, is then eliminated by the digestive system of your body. Listen, what defiles you is not the food you eat. What defiles you is what's going on inside your heart. That's why when you study the Sermon on the Mount, our fullest account of that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is focusing on inner righteousness, what is going on in your heart. That's why he will say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you have evil thoughts, if you speak evil of another human being, you've committed it. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at lust upon a woman, you are guilty. See, Jesus is saying what God is really interested in is not the external. He's interested in 
what's going on in your heart. And that's why salvation, which begins with the act of faith in Jesus Christ, begins the process of helping us to deal with the internal issues. What is going on in our heart, our soul, our mind, our will? Because Jesus Christ transforms us from the inside out. Legalism is focusing just on the externals. Genuine salvation is transformation from the inside out. It begins with the faith commitment to Christ. It contains the difference between, and we've talked about this dozens of times in this class, it's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the act, sanctification is the process. Jesus is interested in transforming us from the inside out. Read the Sermon on the Mount. And so what Jesus is doing, again, and as we conclude this section now of chapter 7, is setting up this contrast between the spiritual leadership of first century Israel and him as the Messiah. Which one is really focused on transformation? Jesus is. He will clean us up from the inside out. All the Pharisees are interested in is the externals. To them, what do they observe? What's the one thing they clamp down on when they talk to Jesus? Your disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And Jesus says, you know, you're missing the whole point. That is not what God is interested in. And when you bind people to that legalistic, outer, performance-based righteousness, you're missing the whole point of the law. And so this is a powerful section that helps us to understand why the spiritual leadership reached the conclusion, this guy's got to go, because he's publicly humiliating them, publicly confronting them, and challenging everything they stood for. Their interpretation and application of God's law to meet their needs, to meet their priorities. Hence, hence Christ calls them hypocrites. Got it? Jim, I had a comment on this or question. Uh, what this does, at least for me, and I think a lot of the guys, there is no limit to what we can put in terms of God's righteousness into our lives and into our minds and into our hearts. That's unlimited. I mean, if, if we seek him, we will find him. And, and I think that's such a great encouragement to us, regardless of where we are on this road of life and, and uh, growth in him, that he will provide enlightenment, don't you think? And, and because he loves us. I mean, he went to the cross for us. So if he loves us that much and, he's, and we're seeking him like he's wanting here, then there's no limit to what we can put into our hearts and our spirit so that there's no room uh, for some of these evil things that we might idly think about when we have additional time on our hands. And I don't know. I'm, I'm encouraged by this. Uh, you know, even though it's in an adverse situation, <laughs> Christ penetrates it. And he just shows that there is there is light and hope uh, for all of us who believe in him. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, uh, 
Yeah, it was more just a set of comments than a question, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, what, and I think it's an, an important application, I think, for us today is um, our walk with Jesus Christ, again, thinking of the process of sanctification, our walk with Jesus Christ is a walk of dependence on Him and the, the enabling power and guidance of the Holy Spirit who dwells us. But it is, we're in this process of transformation. And it is holistic, it's comprehensive, it involves everything. Jesus is transforming us from the inside out. And transformation is a transformation of the will, a transformation of the mind, a transformation of the heart. It's a, it's a complete holistic transformation. And we need to get out of the way and let Jesus do that. So that we can become, remember, the goal of sanctification is to become like Christ and, and let that happen. And it's hard sometimes because we're letting go of habits and patterns that we've held on to for decades sometimes. But that's, it's all right. That's the way to fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life. But it is it, to keep in our minds at all times, in our focus, this is what God's doing in my life now. He's taking all of these things that hurt me, that have been self-destructive, he's taking them away from me, step by step by step, and transforming me. And I'm beginning to think like him. I'm beginning to have emotional responses that honor him. My heart is beginning to line up in, in, in sync with him. My will, God is transforming our will. And when I understand that, when I really came to understand that after I came to the Lord, it took quite a few years for me to really get that. I began to understand what truly is liberating about Jesus Christ, what truly is freeing about Jesus Christ. He's freeing me from all the things that are tearing me down. And the other thing about this passage is one of our greatest enemies in this process is legalism. When we allow people to define Christianity by external things. Christianity is not external things. It's internal transformation, which results in external manifestation. The internal transformation of every part of us continues to result in the external manifestation of the love, joy, peace, patience, the things that you see in the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why it's, we have to be patient with each other. We have to encourage and nurture each other because we're all in this process. Nobody has reached the goal yet, and we won't until we go to be with the Lord. But Jesus is really confronting something here, which is the liberating message of the gospel. It's not about external conformity. It's about internal transformation. And that's why Jesus uses this very intense language to make a very important point about true transforming faith in the Lord Jesus. All right, is everybody with me? It's a great passage. It's quite transformational, actually. All right, if there are no questions, let's move on to the rest of chapter 7, verse 24. And from there, Gennesaret, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, he arose 
and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, in all the maps I've given you in your packet, I don't have Tyre and Sidon on any of the maps. It's way up north along the Mediterranean coast. It would be, in modern day, Lebanon. At that time, these were Phoenician cities. These are Gentile cities. There aren't Jews here. And so it's uh, from where Jesus was in Gennesaret, it's about 45 miles, maybe close to 50 miles north, almost due north, along the coast of the Mediterranean. So again, I want you to make sure you understand, Jesus now is in Gentile territory. There are not many Jews living in Tyre and Sidon in A.D. 32, which is probably the year Jesus is doing this. Next verse, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter and had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now Mark tells us, verse 26, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, that's a very important piece of information. This is not a Jew. This is not an Israelite. This is a woman who is a Syrophoenician. That's just her ethnic background. And Mark is very explicit. She's a Gentile. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, men, there are two key phrases. Children's bread, and the second phrase, the dogs. Now, you are probably, when you read this, say, what in the world? <laughs> what a terrible response for Jesus to say to give to this woman who's begging him to help her daughter who's demon-possessed. What does Jesus mean? It is not right to take the children's bread. Who are the children? The children of Israel, Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. He comes to declare his Messiahship to the Jews first and to throw it to the dogs. Dogs was a term the Jews used to refer to Gentiles. So Jesus is using the language of the first century. Is it right? It is not right for me to take the children's bread, the word that I am to declare to the children of Israel, and give it to Gentiles, dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That's true in real life, but it's true spiritually. Are there not enough crumbs left over for the dogs? Verse 29, and he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bread, the demon gone. When she makes that statement, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs, she is responding 
to the figures of speech Jesus is using with another figure of speech, but it demonstrates faith. And that's why Christ says in verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. What statement? The statement she made in verse 28, responding to Jesus. It evidenced faith. Now, gentlemen, this is nothing short of astonishing. Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon. Gentile, heavy Gentile area. Tyre and Sidon, this is where Jezebel was from. If you go back 900 years earlier, this, th these, these are the Phoenicians that, that were the center of Baal worship in the Old Testament. You remember enough about that from your study. So, I mean, this is a thoroughly pagan area. Yet here was a woman who had heard about Jesus heard the stories about Jesus, and she had enough faith to fall at his feet and ask for a messianic miracle. And Jesus is testing her faith. I can't take the bread that's for my children and give it to dogs. You're a dog, you're a Gentile. And she responded, but Lord, aren't there enough crumbs left for the Gentiles too? And Jesus is honoring her faith. And so this is an extraordinary demonstration of the extent of the reach of Jesus, of his message, of his power, of what he was doing, even reaching a thoroughly pagan area like Tyre and Sidon. And here's a woman, I believe you and I will see in heaven, because she responded to what she had heard, and she responded with faith, that he and he alone could deal with the demonic possession of her daughter, of her daughter, and honored that faith. So I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about uh, the difference between uh, the uh, Pharisees and the Jews learning about Jesus and in the uh, Greeks or the rest of the people, it would seem like it would be tougher for the Jews to unlearn their law, their law stuff, than it would be for the for the Greeks. I would I would think that, to me I would think that the Greeks would be more ready to accept the word of Jesus. Uh, I just want to know if that's a possibility. Well, Woody, actually, that's, that's a quite an insightful question there. Uh, let me take it apart. You are correct in, in what you said, that for many Jews, it would be more difficult to embrace the teachings of Jesus, because, in effect, what they would have to do is, in a, in, in a real sense, reevaluate 1,500 years of their teaching and tradition. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's confronting them with that. And the spiritual leadership, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, etc., they are unwilling to do that. Um, there, whereas the Greeks, the Greco-Roman world, um, they don't have they don't have those traditions. They have their polytheistic, animistic, mythological, religious things that you read in all the epics about Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and all the mythological tales and stuff. 
And when they come to terms with the clarity of who Jesus is and what he represents, it is much easier for many of them to embrace that. And that's one of the reasons after Christ goes back to the Father, the gospel spreads like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean world. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable how fast it spreads. And yet vast majority of Jews in the first century do not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And that's one of the great tragedies. But that is exactly what your point was making. They had 1,500 years of tradition, not a proper understanding of the law, 1,500 years of tradition. That's why today, in 2021, a Jewish person has 3,500 years of tradition that they must be willing to set aside. Now, what makes that possible, or I almost said easy, but I'll say possible, is to understand all the prophecies of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills all those prophecies. The right strategy to use with the Jew is a clear focus on, here's what the Old Testament prophecy said Messiah would do, what he would be like, what he would say. Here's what Jesus Christ did, said, and acted. You do the math. Is he the Messiah? Is he your Messiah? And I, I, when I was in graduate school and seminary, two of my best friends were Jews who had come to know Christ as their Savior. One was from Chicago, the other was from New Jersey. They were, the, they were the most incredible guys to be around because they were literally on fire for Christ because they, they called themselves completed Jews. But you're right, Woody. It, it is, it was then, it is now difficult for a Jewish person to embrace Jesus. And so, I mean, that, that is correct. Thank you. Well, we ought to feel blessed, those of us that are doing the study with you, I believe. Well, it's the God's Word that's the blessing. You're right. Let's see what time it is. Oh, my goodness. I expected it to be a quarter after. It's 20 minutes of one. Um, look with me at verse 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. This is one of Jesus' messianic miracles. It's the only, this is the only place you see it. It's only in Mark. It isn't in Matthew. It isn't in Luke. It isn't in John. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you look at the map on page five or even the one that's on page seven, Mark is summarizing. That's a long trip Jesus is making here. What he summarized in one verse, he's gone from way up north in Tyre and Sidon. If you look at the map on page seven, you'll see on the east side of the map, the right-hand side of the map, Decapolis. So Jesus is now on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis uh, is 10 cities that Rome had set up. These are Greco-Roman, these are not Jewish cities, these are Greco-Roman cities. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside, this is Jesus taking the man aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. Underline that. 
I want to talk about that. He sighed and said, Epphatha. That's Aramaic. Epphatha. Be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. He spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were admonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So here, here you have a man who has a speech impediment. He is deaf, so he cannot hear and he cannot speak well. He's virtually moot. What does Jesus do? It seems a little bizarre, puts his fingers into his ears after spitting, touched his tongue. That's, you probably are repulsed by that. But Jesus is taking his spittle, touching the tongue of the man. Jesus is taking that which would make him as a Jew unclean, but Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He can do whatever he wants, and he sighed. Why does Mark tell us he sighed? Remember, the chief source for Mark when he wrote his gospel was Simon Peter. He sighed. What is Jesus sighing about? The burden, the weight, the dysfunction, the hurt, the pain that results from sin. The physical curse of the, of the world because of sin. Why are people born blind, deaf, mute? Why are people sometimes born with only one leg? Why do on and on, any condition you can think of? Because of the curse of a broken, fallen world. And Jesus sighed. <sighs> the burden that my image bears must bear because of the curse on this physical world due to their sin. And so the Son of God takes his spittle. Son of God puts his fingers in this man's ears and heals him. And this man who could not speak, could not hear, is now restored. This is an indicator of what will happen when Jesus Christ comes back. And the dead in Christ rise first, and we are alive and caught up to be with him forever. We will receive our resurrected, glorified bodies. I'm blind in my left eye from a childhood accident. When I receive my, blind, my resurrected body, I will see out of both eyes. I don't know what it's like to see out of both eyes. So that's an this is a part of the promise. This is what it will be like. But Jesus, the dysfunction and hurt and pain of this fallen, broken world. But Christ is the answer to everything, including the physical restoration. And this is, this is the promise of the gospel, ultimate restoration of all things. And that's part of what Christ's miracles are all about. It's an indicator, a, a purveyor, a foresight of what will happen for all human beings who put their faith in him in the resurrected state. When everything is restored, 
and sin is gone. So I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but it's one of those things to be excited about. Here's a foretaste of what's coming. Jesus selected a few people, but it's a foretaste. This is what will happen to all. And this man has given back his ability to speak and his ability to hear. All right? I'm leaving class today excited. I hope you guys are too. It's a great, Amen. great chapter. This is a great chapter. Uh, I, I really like this chapter because of the, as I said at the beginning, this enormously important contrast between Christ and the spiritual leadership. Yeah. All right. Thank, thank you, Jim. And you're, you're welcome. Next week, we'll crack into chapter eight of the feeding of the 4,000, and we'll just keep moving on. Russ, again, it's good to have you back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your unbelievably gracious and good providence in our lives. Thank you for restoring Russ to health. We are grateful that you have been, been gracious to him. Uh, we pray for the family of that man that was in the room with him who died of COVID just a few days ago. So we're grateful that you saved him from any damage to his body, saved him and restored him to health. We are grateful for that. May you continue to remind him of the way in which you are interested in every aspect of his life and remind us that you're a God who cares about every facet of our lives. We thank you for this marvelous chapter that we studied today. Help us to be not men who are interested in legalistic outward external conformity, but are committed to inward transformation of our minds, our hearts, our will, which then is manifested by our external acts. You are all about transforming us from the inside out. That is the point you were making to your disciples when you taught them what that really means. Thank you too, that you are a God of care, of comfort, a God of, of enormous consolation, a God of compassion, and you show that every day. May we represent you, dear Lord, in a way that is transformational as well. May we be strong men of faith who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Well, guys, we'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you.